Hey there guys, Dave here and I've got a little bonus episode for you which is the first episode of Mandatory Music and CD. Now this is a little side project which myself and a couple of friends, Max and Tony, are going to talk about a particular album that means something to us growing up. The plan is we'll get a few episodes under our belt with the three of us and then we'll start to add guests in and I tell you what, I've got Chris lined up for some absolute belters. Our first episode kicks off with an album that means a hell of a lot to all three of us, and it is the 1989 self-titled debut album, Skid Row. If you do enjoy the episode, please seek out Mandatory Music and CD wherever you get your podcasts from, and subscribe to it. We'll be releasing an episode once every month, so it gives everyone plenty of chance to listen ahead. So that's Mandatory Music and CD... The music that shaped our lives one album at a time. Let the beat guitar! everybody welcome to mandatory music and cds the show where three friends reminisce about the music that shaped our lives so once a month we'll be talking about a classic album both as a whole and track by track while we tell stories about our memories of the album the band the time it was released culminating with our very own classic rock rating so uh, this show is a three-way conversation and the three participants will be a regular fixture uh, i'm max Byrne, so I'm Hi to everybody out there who's uh, not already heard us on this network. And I'm joined by two of the very best, two of the absolute best men a man could ever be joined by on a podcast. I've got the man who puts the funk in Florida, Mr. Tony Farina. Hello, and hello. I've got the best. Hi, Tony. You all right? <laughs> yes. Thank you, Max. The funk in Florida. Somebody's got to get the funk out of Florida is what I'm saying. But yeah. Yeah. If I was, if I was you, I'd get, get the, the funk, funk out, out of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Get the funk out before it's too late, yeah. Um, and we are, of course, joined by the ubiquitous bass slinger from Bedford. It's Mr. Dave Horrocks. Dave, hey how there, are you, Max. sir? Hey there, Tony. It's brilliant to be here. And uh, what a pleasurable uh, rock three-way, as you just described it there. So I can't <laughs> wait to get going on this one. <laughs> that's, that's one way of so putting it, So everybody yeah. insert your Chinese finger cuff jokes now. All right. <laughs> Um, yeah, so this show, as we said at the top there, it's going to be us reminiscing about the glory days of rock and roll and the not-so-glory days of rock and roll. The show will be a real mixture of the good, the bad, and the very ugly, um, depending on the subject of each episode. And at the end of every episode, we're going to do a random draw where we've put all a mixture of albums into the hat, some good, some bad, some indifferent, some to all our tastes, some to none of our tastes, some to some of our tastes. And whichever wins will be the topic for the next episode. So we'll see how that goes at the end. So for this one, the premiere episode, we're going to be covering none other than the self-titled debut album by the great Skid Row. Released on January 24th, 1989 by Atlantic Records, produced by Uber producer Michael Wagner at Royal Recorders Studio in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And to date, it has sold over 5 million copies in the States alone uh, and more worldwide and peaked at number six on the US Billboard chart. 
So, guys, as this is an album that played a part in all of our lives, we'll we'll start with Tony. Tell me about the time this came into your sphere of consciousness. Sure. Um, so it was, I actually went and looked up the day. So I know the specific day. This is the only time I'll ever be able to do this probably when we, during the time of the show, but it was <laughs> March 21st, 1989. I was in Detroit, Michigan to see at Joe Lewis Arena, which is where the Red Wings used to play. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a hockey rink, which was a great place to see a show. I've seen a lot of shows there. You know, it's designed with those sight lines. You guys don't watch a lot of hockey over there, I know, but um Hockey arenas are the best place to see a show because there's no shit in the way because it's, you know, it's, it, yeah. everybody's got to see everything. So I went to see the Bon Jovi uh, New Jersey tour. That's why I was there. And the opening band was Skid Row. I had not heard of them. They hadn't broken yet, even though Youth Gone Wild had been released. Um, at that point in time, my little shitty burb where I'm from, the other side of Michigan, hadn't really made our local radio or anything. So I didn't really know who they were. So that was my first experience with seeing them. And they played nine songs off this first album, which I think is almost all the songs. <laughs> and uh, Practically, yeah. It was amazing. So that was it. So I left, bought a Skid Row t-shirt, bought the album as soon as I could. And that was that for me. That was how I came to them was on accident. And it was a happy accident indeed. It sure is. That sounds brilliant. I'm so jealous as well that you've actually been to see them live with the classic lineup, obviously. It's, we'll, yeah. We'll discuss it at great length later, I'm sure, but obviously the, the current lineup needs a bit to be desired, shall we say, but at least you got to see them in their absolute heyday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, Absolutely, yeah. And Dave, how about yourself? When, when did this album first come into the Horrocks household? So I'm not sure I can compete with that. I mean, being right there in 89, you know, right after the album had been cut, uh, I, I, I mean, it could only be better if you were jumped on top of by Sebastian Bach while he's <laughs> beating the crap out of someone else. But no, so uh, honestly, I think this album was a bit of a gateway drug for me. Back, so around about the summer of 89, uh, or it would have been just before the summer, I used to be in the school cross-country team. So we used to go on a coach trip, you know, to somewhere else in England. And I just remember, you know, especially when you're younger, when you're on the coach for like four hours or something, it feels like forever, doesn't it? And I had my little cassette tapes and, you know, my Walkman. I used to get about two songs worth before the batteries started running out and everything started to get slower. So you have to change the batteries and whatever. But um, back then, I used to just copy a lot off the radio. So you'd listen to the charts. I think think it was about five o'clock to seven o'clock, wasn't it? Sunday night, Max? Yeah, that was. You know, taping my favorite songs off there, and I'd, I'd listen to those. But I just remember on the way back home, I was so bored. And my mate, Jody, who's uh, sat next to me, I was just like, what, what are you listening to? You know, I just needed something different. And I was aware of like heavy metal music and I just wasn't into it at all. And I, you know, for me, I, I hadn't listened to it. It was that usual judgmental thing where you make your mind up before really listening to something. And um, I, I just, it gave me this Skid Row cassette. And I, th- I just remember hearing Youth Gone Wild and I was like, holy shit. It was like, I imagine if you, you know, in Scandinavia somewhere and you just jump in the sea, you know, <laughs> that, and you just hit that rush of cold air. It was, it was like something I'd never heard. And it was Bach's vocals that just absolutely cut through everything. And you've got those blazing guitars and everything. And I just played it on a loop. I just couldn't get enough of it. 
So I had to get a copy after we, I got back home. I borrowed the cassette off him, made made my own copy and everything, and then uh, just played it on a loop. And then from there, I become more of a rock fan. But I would say this was probably my first band that that I got into, and and on this album as well. What about yourself, Max? Do you remember a show on ITV in the eighties and nineties on a Saturday morning called the Chart Show? Oh yes. Yeah, um, for Tony, obviously not being in, in the British. What that was, Tony, was they used to play. It was a weekly show on a Saturday morning on uh, mainstream TV for about an hour, and they would basically play uh, videos from the top forty. You know, promo videos for all the singles. And yeah, what yeah, have we you. had we had one on Friday nights. It's called shockingly Friday night videos. Nice. That's what oh, they, it was. That. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> big, big smart name. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it wasn't actually on the show that I heard it, but they did, the chart show released a, a physical album called The Rock Album. And it was a double CD and it was all the usual standards from the 70s and 80s that you get on every single fucking rock compilation album with some um, quote unquote newer acts on it at the time. Because this was this would have been 89 or maybe even going into 1990 when I was about 11. And on there, on CD2, I would say track eight, I think it was, if memory serves, was You've Gone Wild, um, which, like most people, I think, was the one that kind of hooked everyone in. I think that was the first single off this album as well. And I just thought it was fantastic, you know, especially being 11, 12, you know, You've Gone Wild. It's everything you want right there when you're that age, when you're sort of becoming a teenager, as I was at that time, you know this rebellious song about being the youth and fuck you and all this. I just thought it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. Um, and from there, probably not long after that, six months to a year, the second album came out, Slave to the Grind, which was even bigger than this first one. I think that went to number one in America, didn't it, Slave mm, to the Grind? Yeah, which yeah. Was, and, and that was the one that really hooked me in because that was a heavier album than this one. It kind of pushed away those 80s metal tropes and went for something that was really... At the time, anyway, contemporary for the early, you know for what was going on in the early nineties, but then you go back and get the debut album as well, which is obviously this one, Skid Row, and it's just a wonderful album, isn't it? It's it's got so many great tracks on it. As we'll get into, I don't think every track is a winner. I think there's some filler on here for, for sure, but I would say at least seventy percent of the album is stone cold classic stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's funny how you say that. That um. Uh, the the way that the second album landed, it, it like they people don't do this anymore, and I don't know if you guys remember this, but this is how it was. Like when Pearl Jam first came out, um, their whole thing was to try to like do what Kiss did, and like for that, while, like Kiss put out an album like every ten months for like ten years in a row, mm. and Pearl Jam tried to do that, and um, it, you know, and they didn't because it's almost you know when you don't have everybody that's the thing with kiss everybody's writing songs out of kiss album you know with pearl jam and you got two people writing the albums you just can't pull it off but um this is how it used to be is that they didn't let moss grow under their feet there'd be album 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 it's like you'd even forget so the fact i'm glad you brought that up next because i totally that's just not how it's done anymore you put an album up and then you'll wait three or four years until that second album comes out now back then it was like nope strike now we've got a three album deal you're going to put three albums out in three years and that's going to be it yeah that's the way it should be really you know you well when that first album the tours finished and it's just coming to the end of its cycle you've got the second one in the can and ready to go so you'd you're not 
away from the public consciousness for months on end, are you? It's, it's the best way to do it, especially when you're new and starting to, you know, trying to gain a foothold in the business. Yeah, for it sure. Is. Yeah, it is a shame that the bands don't churn out albums like that anymore now. Even even bands who aren't, you know, multimillionaires and can afford to sit on their ass for two years at a time doing nothing, ones who need to who need to work, they still don't have that same level of, of productivity, it seems, anyway. Mm. So it is a shame. It is a shame. But um, yeah, a great album, no doubt. Um, so as we said, it came out in 89, start of 89, so it would have been recorded throughout 1988, I guess. Um, and it produced three singles. Youth Gone Wild, as we've just talked about, came out in January 89. 18 and Life came out in June 89. And then I Remember You came out in November 89. So you've basically got a whole year there of promotion from the album coming out till the last sort of hit single from it. So it's basically a whole year of a, of a lifespan for it as well. Uh, it probably helped as well. They had the same management, didn't they, as, as, as Bon Jovi and Motley mm. Crue and bands like that. So I think that helped them. They toured with a lot of those bands as well, didn't they, at that time? They, they got a lot of good support slots, which obviously helped bring them to a bigger audience, didn't it? Yeah, you know, and there's something about us. I, you know, and again, I'm always a person who says, and this is probably why I was 15 when this when I saw them, and so that was it. It was like my first real big, my first big concert was Duran Duran. I saw that on the Notorious tour, like, and then Eraser opened, and that was when he just had left Depeche Mode, and mm-hmm. so like we we went, and we saw it. And I was like, what the fuck is this? He came out, and I mean, like, literally, he had on like a tutu and football pads, like American football pads. It was, it was amazing. And I was like, what is happening? And, you know, cause I didn't, I didn't know who he was, you know, but I don't even think the Eraser album was out yet. And so from that moment, I was like, see the opening act. And that is so important to me to go see the opening act. Cause I found some real bands that I really love or artists that I really love by going to do that. And I think you're absolutely right next. And I don't know how you guys feel about this, but like, for me, if I'm going to go to a show, I want to get there early to get settled in and I want to watch the opening band because I learned a couple bands that I really love, Skid Row included. I wouldn't, if we had waited, we're like, well, the show starts at seven, Bon Jovi won't be on until nine. I'm not going to get there until, you know, 8.30. I would have missed them. Yeah. Absolutely. I always try and watch, unless, unless it's a spot that I already know of and I know I don't like in the slightest, then, then, may, then, may, then maybe. But yeah, if it's someone I, I like or perhaps I'd never heard of, I'll, you'll pop along. You know, concert tickets aren't cheap, are they? So you may as well get a bit more bit more music for your book, I would say. Yeah. I, I think I always wanted to catch the support band just to see that next big up-and-coming thing. Yeah. And it's funny with this album, <clears throat> I mean, they they tore their asses off with this album, didn't they? You know, so if they hadn't done quite so much touring, they probably would have had the album out slave to the grind a little bit earlier, but um, they've got quite a lot to be thankful for, for John Bon Jovi, don't they? Because it was Bon Jovi's parents that actually they were at a wedding where back was performing. And then they (laughs) basically put him in touch with the band and, and then, you know, the rest is history kind of thing. And then, you know, he went touring with them, the infamous Aerosmith tour as well. Those on there, didn't they end up touring with Guns N' Roses as well? And the so, crew as well. Yeah, and, and Motley Crue. And so you sort of think there's not many bands now, I don't think, who will put out an album that sells this many records. I mean, I guess no one sells records anymore, but you know, this many albums um, and, and they're constantly second billing. So I, I kind of appreciate, you know, they 
it says to me that they were quite humble about it as well. Whether that's not tr- whether that's actually true or not, I don't know. But you know, they just seem to to be in it for a ball. And uh, you know, talk about a proper rock and roll lifestyle. I mean, <laughs> again, I know they're going now. I, I'm sure it's not the same since back left. But, uh, you know, you look back at some of those days and it, it just looks unbelievable. Proper rock lifestyle, rock style lifestyle. Oh, definitely. I mean, for anyone who hasn't read it, and I know us three have read it slash listened to it, Sebastian Bach's autobiography really does go into great detail about these days in particular and what it was like. Um, I know, Tony, you said that um, having read it, or reread it fairly recently. You had a few, a few thoughts, shall we say, about you. Yes, those about come that. up. Yes, the the one thing I will say in this part of it, it's true. I have thoughts, and I I will drop those in as we go. I think because there are some of them. I'm like, oh, this makes sense with this, or oh, this makes sense with this. Um, but the the thing is, is he was a fan, like because his dad was a music fan, and so Sebastian was a music fan, and so I think too, Dave, what you're saying about him wanting them, them being humble about it. But they're fa- so being the opening act, you get to sit and watch the band. Yeah. So like mm. his heroes, like he goes on and on about hanging out with Vince Neil and how Vince Neil is one of his mm. heroes. And so for him, every day getting to play for forty five minutes and then get to sit on the side of the stage or front wherever he wants and watching his favorite band play, he gets to sit and watch Tommy Lee dump upside down every night. That was just like for him, it was so exciting. You can tell like these these this band, this album in particular is made by guys who love music and you can tell there's mm. it's a fun it's a fun album and slave to the grind i think i'm sure that'll that's on our list and eventually we'll get to it as as the time goes on but even the name slave to the grind lets you know it's a commentary on all that touring but also it's a much heavier album it's a lot less fun mm. it's good they they're way better mus- musicians so i think I think all that comes to say, you know, why would you choose to be? Because we know today, if somebody broke like these guys did six months in, by the time 18 in life hit number four, you're done. You're not going to play opening. Yeah. You're going to instead of playing like opening in an arena, you're going to headline in a theater. Yeah. And that's what they yeah, would do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. The, the exuberance does come through on the album, like you're oh. saying. You? It's, it's not a... There's no, there's there's no social commentary on this album, shall we say? There's no there's there's no sort of use of metaphor or hidden meaning or great moments of introspection or anything like this. It's it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, isn't it? It is. Oh, it totally is, and I think that comes through too as we go, as we go through song by song because with of having read the book, like you mentioned, Max, Sebastian didn't write much of this. He didn't. These songs were there and he shaped the song. So he didn't get writing credit where slave to the grind. He was a co-writer on most of the songs. So um, you get his exuberance and these other guys ideas of what it means to be a rock star. And so it's a very, um, it's a wish it's wish. It's like wistful. It's like if I were 12 and I wanted to be a rock star, I would write this album. <laughs> you know, you're like, <laughs> yes, 12 year old boy rock star album. I mean, it, it it's so fun for all those reasons. <laughs> Yeah, it certainly is. It certainly is. Um, okay, before we sort of dive into each individual track, but just a quick note on the lineup from the album. So Skid Row, five-piece band, the lineup was, Sebastian, obviously, as we've just said, Sebastian back on lead vocals, Dave the Snake, Sabo on guitar, Scotty Hill on guitar, Rachel Bowler on bass, and Robert Fuso 
on drums. Um, and that's it's considered the classic lineup of the band. Only Sebastian Bach and Robert Fuso are no longer in the band. The other three, the core of the band, if you will, have stayed in it up to this day with, I think they're on the, uh, their fourth singer now since Sebastian Bach left. They've literally just in the last week or two recruited a new Swedish guy, which will, uh, We'll speak about him in a in a bit, I think. Um, <laughs> they haven't had as many drummers as Spinal Tap, though. No, no none of, I don't no. think any of them have died, have they, in a bizarre gardening accident or, any, or anything like that. Not yet, anyway. But um, no, they've, certainly this was their classic lineup and played on, I think, the first three albums before it kind of disintegrated. But um, yeah, certainly when you think of Skid Row, this is the lineup you think of. Um, okay, so let's have a look at the songs then. So there are 11 songs on the album. The album in total is only 39 minutes. Every song is either sort of three or four minutes long. Certainly none of these songs outstay the welcome. There's no sort of meandering instrumental passages or, you know, a million time changes where you need a calculator to work out what time signature they're playing or anything like that. They kind of stretch <laughs> no solo is what you're saying. <laughs> uh, there's, no, no, there isn't. Maybe, maybe they could have put one in, you know, at the sort of uh, end of piece of me or something like this. Who knows? Could have elevated it to a new level. But um... <laughs> there's no prog in this rock, is there? <laughs> there is. There is no. There is no prog. It's in your face. Late '80s metal or rock, rock into metal. I would say, um, it's not sophisticated, but the musicianship is excellent. Um, Okay, so track one is Big Guns at 3 minutes and 36 seconds, written by Dave Sabo, Rachel Bowen, Scott Hill, and Rob Fuso. Uh, so we'll start with Tony on this one. What do you think about Big Guns? I actually think this is the way you start. Again, this, this, uh, this is the song, the reason I said, like, if I'm 12 and I'm going to write a rock song, I'm going to write a rock album, this is how I want it to start. It's called Big Guns. <laughs> it's noisy. Bam! It, like, starts... You know, a few shows drums just own this track. I, I'm sure Dave will have lots to say about Rachel's um, skills on the bass. I think he's a very good, he's no Michael Anthony, but he's a very good bass player, which you see mm -hmm. later, later on as the album goes on. But I, I, I mean, you talked about it, Max, there's some filler. This isn't it. This is the way yeah. to start an album. And this was, again, when you had to buy a cassette, Dave, or you bought a record. And so, you know, even, even CDs were just starting, but you listened to them in order then and so they knew this is the first song everybody's going to hear of this lineup of skid row i think you know the lyrics are again as you said the lyrics are what they are there's not a lot going on you know but uh i love it i, I this is this is and this is one of my favorite ones on the album and i think it's just because it this is how i'd want to start a rock album absolutely yeah what do you reckon dave yeah i think Years after, you know, being exposed to this and, and I, I got into a little bit of original music and with various bands, various styles, I think this kind of imprinted on me that idea that you do start off with the bang. In fact, if I think of the original stuff, but also in terms of even when we did uh, covers in different bands, you want that first song to really smack you in the face. You need it to be upbeat. And as Tony says, it starts off with that. You know, it's chugging away. And I just think it's a great, great start. I must admit, I do feel a little bit. Um, oh, I don't quite know how the right way. 
you know, this is not one I'd feel comfortable um, uh, explaining the virtues of in a feminist meeting. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is ridiculous. And again, when you're a little, you know, I, I was an early teenager when I was listening to this and it, it was like, you know, you, you're not really thinking too deeply about the lyrics, um, but, you know, the lyrics of, look at them big guns. <laughs> like, for fuck's sake. But I do, it kind of, in a weird way, even though utterly disrespectful and whatever, it, it gives me that nostalgia, that 80s rock was just uh, it was just like that wasn't it there was just no subtlety at all it was just completely misogynistic over the top um but yeah i just i can't help but still love it yeah oh me too i think it's a great way to kick off the album it's it's the rock of the period 101 for me and it's got mm. that thing in it that all sort of was very prevalent at the time is that like kind of gang vocal where where they shout the shout like big guns and that's the in a lot of 80s songs or maybe even creeping into the early 90s they had that part of the chorus where they chant it and it all the members of the band or or maybe just the lead singer multi-tracked would chant it out rather than it just be like a, a single vocal um, a lot of bands of that motley crew used to do it a lot um so it kind of fits the time period i mean like you said guys i said as well the lyrics are <laughs> In interesting you know i'll just quote you a bit of this actually yeah um i'm doing time as a backseat romeo play solitaire with my hands in the air another night and no bullets to spare <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah it is what it is isn't it you know um but like you said when you're the age you are in 1989, you're not really looking for subtext, are you? You're just looking for fist in the air, balls to the wall, rock that hits you right in the face. And, and this song certainly does. I think it's a, it is a great way to open the album. No doubt about it. Yeah. If I'm to be critical of it, though, for a second, and, and I absolutely love this album, so cards on the table. Mm. I do think, especially if you look at that second album, I, I think there's a lot more maturity. And yeah. even though Sebastian Bach or Burke, as he originally was, uh, even though he was the youngest, for me, he does get rock a lot more than the others. Mm. And the fact that this, these songs were all pre-written, as Tony said there, and he's just, you know, he's added a different dimension. But I think when his, because his vocals are so world-class, I think when you've got that kind of crowd shouting, if you like, you've got the other vocals coming in. Yeah. I think it drags it down. Mm. I, I, I don't think it elevates it. I just think he is so powerful on his own. I, and I think that's one of the reasons the second album is better. I think you get a lot less of this style of, of kind of crowd shouting vocals. Yeah. And, We'll get onto the third track, I'm sure, in a bit, but I think it's even worse on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, slight points down for me on the. Uh, I mean, they're not group harmonies; they're just shouts, aren't they? So, right, it's not. It's not um, John and Richie who can sing together. Like, yeah, it's not that. It's not. They don't complement yeah, each yeah. other, right? Well, it's like what Max said about looping it. Whenever we get around to a queen, you know, there's a reason Freddie just backed himself. Because what are you yeah. going to do? You're going to back Freddie Mercury? You are not. So, you know, I hear what you're saying, but I, 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 I get that criticism, but I get what this is why seeing them 
because of that shout, because they're encouraging mm. you to get in there. It is they know they're playing arena rock. They wrote arena rock songs in some garage in New Jersey when they were nobodies because mm. they they were trying to emulate. I think what you said, crew, this is that's who they wanted to be. Right. Crew does that. Yeah. 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 No, that's a great point. That's a good Shout out yeah. to devil. Come on. That's all that is. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll get to crew on the future oh, episode. I'm sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. Most, most definitely. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll move on to track two then, which is um, "Sweet Little Sister," written by Sabo and Bolan at three minutes ten seconds. What do you reckon, Dave? I mean, it just continues along the same theme. I mean, if this was a musical, it could be going from that opening scene where they're looking at some girl's big guns and then they find out, you know, she's the sweet little sister of someone. So <laughs> it's just, again, a, a very lechy song. But I, I do think this is another belter, to be honest. This is another one that it could have been that first track where it's, mm. it, it's not quite as chuggy. I don't know if that's a technical term, but, you know, it, yeah. it, it's uh, it's still very upbeat and uh, some great lyrics. I don't know if you've got some quotes there, but uh, I, I really like this one as well. I think I think the first two tracks are really strong. And if I was to mark them both individually, I think I'd have them at equal footing, I think. So, yeah, another really good one for me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What's your opinion, Tony? Well, I, I hear all that. And again, musically, sonically, I love this song. I mean, I don't, but lyrically, this one doesn't sit well. This one has aged p- the poorest, I think, of them mm. all. Um, right in the middle of the song, um, you know, and especially after reading his book and seeing how like much of a bigot he isn't and what mm. a good guy he is, there's that, you know, there's, and again, it's 1989. And I will, you know, I will admit when I'm a kid growing up in the 70s and 80s, there was a game we would play. Um, we'd go to American football matches, high school matches and whatever. And we'd all the littler kids on the side would play like rugby and they would call it smear the queer. You didn't think twice about it, what that meant. And whoever had the ball was the queer. And then your Jeez. job was to try to get away and not get your ass kicked. So that, so that word is in this song. Um, and I know he's not saying he's doing it because the line is her friends doing time for kicking ass in a queer. Don't love that. And I know oh, he, didn't, he yeah, didn't write yeah. the song. Um, so, so that doesn't, that's the only one on here too, but that is also, it's almost like I feel the producers are like, listen, this is what people say in the eighties. People would say that's so gay. And they would mean lame Mm. and you would say Mm. queer and you would mean it. You weren't realizing you were being offensive to a whole group of people because it was part of that rock culture. So musically, I love it. Um, But then when you break it down, like big guns, I can just get past it. Cause again, it's a 12 year old boy. This one, I'm like, it is somebody's sister. Is it your sister? Cause the line is she's my sweet little sister. Wait, what now? What's happening? So (laughs) (laughs) I think I would like a good rewrite of maybe some of this, but there are some, the line, she'll take you dancing with a crack of a whip. You'll go to heaven in her rocket ship. <laughs> I mean, those are the, so it is, it's like, a, it's a big, so just right in the middle of the, of the song. I just couldn't get past that one. But again, musically, sonically, it, you said what, 310 max? It feels like it's a minute and a half. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so fast paced, isn't it? That's the thing. Yeah. It's, it's a lot faster than big guns. And, and the vocal delivery as well in the verses is very, very fast. Like he spits out the lyrics very fast. I like the guitar solo in it as well. I think it's got a nice, very whittly, 
80s guitar solo although it is quite short i would have liked it to go up gone for just a few bars more but what we get is very good the guitar playing on this album throughout is superb by the way i think it no, do it, they switch it guitars do they is it does it switch between um snake and uh why can't i think of the other scotty guy? hill scotty hill do they switch lead or is is snake the lead and scotty's the rhythm um, I'm not entirely sure, to be honest yeah, with you. I don't know. But I don't think they say. switch. Do yeah. you? Okay. In fact, you know, there is a song where you can hear it's like trading off, like Iron Maiden style, where they're mm. sort of swapping solos. You, I, we'll get to that. Is that the big, the big solo in I Remember You? Is that where they switch? The one I'd noted it down on was in Here I Am, like a, oh, guitar, okay. tr- a guitar trade-off. Okay. Um, but yeah, they're obviously both great players. Oh, the yeah, whole yeah. band are great, really tight musicians, aren't they? You know, yeah. that's the thing I like about the, the the rock of this time. Even the shittest fucking bands had really good guitar players who could, you know, who could knock out a good solo. Even the crappiest mm. 80s cock rock, hair metal, whatever, whatever you, derogatory term you want to give it. Even the wankiest bands still had really good musicianship. I, I completely. And, and so when I was 17 was when I got my first guitar. And I think the, the, the problem mentally, I, I think, around this time, you know, right up until was it 1991, I think, Nevermind came out. Yeah. It was almost an impenetrable barrier because everyone, like you say, Max, was shit hot at this time. And you're like... Mm-hmm. Oh Christ! I'll have to go and live like a Buddhist monk, you know, for for ten years before I reach that level. And, and then grunge came along, and I'm sure we'll kind of talk about that at some point. But it it lowered the bar for me. Mm. It was like, and and then in the UK, indie, you know, an Oasis and things like that came along. And again, it was just it set the bar as something like, oh, you know what, I I could play that. Whereas this stuff. I mean, uh, uh, all right, some of the simple riffs. Actually, one of the songs we'll get to, uh, 18 in Life, was probably one of the first rock songs I ever learned on guitar. Mm. I remember going down to the library, I got the book out and everything. I was sort of <laughs> picking out the notes and everything. So, uh, yeah, I could play that. But then when it comes to the solos and things and, and the sounds that they get, those high harmonics that, that they always chuck in the background as well, just phenomenal musicianship. I yeah. agree. It, oh yeah, it is. And it's tight as a drum as well. Like there's no margin for error. It's, that's what sets these bands apart. I think even, you know, even on songs and we will, we'll may as well jump to track three. Cause it's sure. a perfect example. Track three can't stand the heart written by Rachel Bolan at three minutes and 24. This for me is one of the filler songs on the album. I hate the acapella start where they just say can't stand the heartache uh, it's very much dates the song um but i do think the vocal delivery is massive i think it elevates the song from a really quite shitty song into a half decent song but you could say that but i don't mean the whole album is like that but you could say that his vocals elevate everything on the album that's for sure um i suppose the chorus is quite anthemic on it i suppose but other than that, this for me is one of the filler tracks on the album. Maybe I'm being too harsh. Tony, what do you think? No, I, I totally agree. I think we, this is the one where, like, and I think the whole album is because Box vocals are so good. You know, you skip over some of the terrible lyrics. And again, we were all kids. Mm-hmm. We were all teenagers. So we weren't thinking deeply about any of the lyrics. But even now, like listening back over the month as we've been thinking about this, and I've been listening to it on, on a loop you forget sometimes because you're so caught up in what he's doing, his skill. And I love punk. 
this is almost this is you take a few guitar solos away which i know you said you wish they were a little bit longer max if you and i agree but if you tighten up some of the guitar solos this is a punk album it's on Mm. the verge of being a punk album because the skill that that bach brings and that because they're so tight and their music and this is one of those songs where it's like a throwaway punk song they didn't know what else to do and bach was like watch what i can do to it these lyrics are stupid listen to me and you forget how bad they are. So I'm with you. It's not, it's definitely, I don't know if it's the worst. I, I, I don't know if it's the worst song on, on the album, but it's, I could skip it and be okay. But with it on in the background, I don't have to think twice about it either. Yeah. 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 I would say that's fair. What do you reckon, Dave? This is probably my least favorite on the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, definite filler, I would say. But the, the thing is, I, I think it's that opening that just makes it sound terrible. I, I think, again, we want our rock stars to to be breaking hearts. We don't mm. want them complaining about heartache and having a broken heart. Fuck that. These are rock stars. They, they <laughs> don't do that. You know, leave that to, you know, the, the mopey boy bands or something. So I, it puts me off. As soon as it starts, I'm like, oh, God, it's this one. But I must admit, when it gets into it, I enjoy it more. So by the time it gets through the song, I'm enjoying it more than that initial feeling. Can't stand the heartache for fuck's sake. So (laughs) I think the, I think the verse is okay. You know, suicide with a cover girl. And then again, Bax vocal in the verse is so up and down. I think he, it's just these vocal gymnastics that just make it sound good and elevate it from what is actually written and the music. But then when it gets into the into the chorus, I think that's where it drops again. I mean, chorus is in the song five times. Again, it's a throwaway crappy punk song. He had a chorus. So Rachel wrote a chorus. Can't stand the heartache. So bleeds the red, red rose. Time heals the broken heart. That's just the way it goes. Can't stand the heartache. So he loops it around in the same five times. That's in this song. And it's a, yeah. what did you say, 320 max? So it's, it's a, yeah, again, Short one. unlike the previous song, which felt like a minute and a half in a real good way, mm-hmm. this feels like it's seven minutes in a real, I mean, it's like it's too long because you're like, oh, that was at a time too when you could just repeat yourself over and over and people would forgive you. There's no way this was going to be a single. Oh, right. No. They're like, this one sucks, but it's Rachel's band. It's one he wrote himself. I mean, it's he's the one who has the rich dad, right? I mean, they are not a band without Rachel <laughs> Boland. So we'll put this one on there, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it's just a it's it's just a stock song, isn't it? There's nothing there's nothing exceptional about it. I can't imagine it ever gets put in their live set these days. Probably hasn't since this tour, to be honest with you. So no, I'd have I to, I think... wonder, I should go see I the, where I found the date. I wonder if this, they even did this. They only did nine songs in that opening set. So yeah, this must like, have been. We're not even going to do this one. This one sucks, boss. This yeah. midnight tornado. <laughs> that's the one oh. I was thinking, like, was that the worst one? I can't. You uh, Well, when we get there, that's the end. What a, what a shitty the, way to end an album. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's terrible, isn't it? But um, I mean, if you read it, you know, so, so try and detach from the music and, and you just read it. So can't stand the heartache. So bleeds the red, red rose time heals a broken heart, but that's just the way it goes. And then it repeats around. Like you say, this would almost fit more a ballad type of, of mm. song. I think, you know, if they, if they were to do something like, and I remember you or 18 in life, you would think that would fit better, but yeah, I, th- I think it's, 
it's just a miss for me, this one. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement there, to be honest with you. I don't think this is anyone's favourite track. But we'll move on to track four, which is my favourite track on the album. Track number four is Piece of Me, written again by Rachel Bowen. The shortest song on the album at two minutes, 48 seconds. Tony, talk to me. Do you like a piece of me? The song that is not me. The song... <laughs> you said this is not your fit. This is your least favorite. No, this song? is my favorite. Oh, this, this is, is my favorite. favorite. Oh, okay. yeah, this is my absolute do, favorite. Uh, this is Rachel Boland's. This I think you should go to Dave first because all I wrote down was, man, <laughs> Rachel Boland bass. What's Dave going to say? Those are my notes. So I I passed to Dave. I think I do think Rattlesnake Shake, which is two songs later, is like piece of me, piece of me like as a better songwriter writer. Cause there's a lot of similar sounds there, but I was like, this is just, I'm the bass player and I want to make a song. That's how I felt about it. Yeah. I I'd agree with that. It, for me, that bass riff almost has that Batman feel to it. Doesn't it? You know, the original <laughs> Adam West Batman sort of sound and it's clear, you know, songs can start off when, when you're writing them and creating them lots and lots of different ways, but you can tell he's probably just, turned up and had a jam you know he's had this particular riff that he's been working on in his bedroom work through that and then everyone just adds on top of that as well so i really like this one as well and the thing is i can't really hear this one without thinking of that infamous sebastian back footage from the aerosmith concert <laughs> where he dives into the stage and he's he's launched that bottle and ended up smashing in some girl's face so and cost the band pretty much their whole tour income so um <laughs> I, I do think it is a, a really great great song this one i do it like i said it's my favorite song on the album i just think it sounds huge i think the lyrical opening sums up the band perfectly at that time you know sleezing in the city looking for a night for a fight i should say got my heels and looking pretty on a saturday night 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 um but it, that just sums up the band. You know, they were pretty boys, you know, got my heels and looking pretty. It was the last sort of remnants of that glam metal 80s era. It was on its dying embers. But then you've got Sleezing in the city looking for a fight. You know, they were pretty boys, but they weren't soft boys. Skid Row, you know, they played tough music. It wasn't, you know, soft rock. It wasn't AOR. It was heavy metal but they still had that glamorous side to them. I just think it sums up what the band were about. I love the video to this as well. It's a great video of them playing live while there's people getting arrested. It opens mm. with some guy getting cuffed into the cop car. It's just a great anarchic video. I mean, I mean you know, again, lyrically, it's not sophisticated. It's a song about fighting and shagging at the end of the day. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great, it's got a badass riff as well. And it's because it's a short song, it just never stops. If I just want to put it on, I, I put it on quite a lot going to work just to sort of pick myself up. And get, I just think it's a really cool sort of blunt force trauma kind of song. I agree. I think it's, again, this is where it's like a punk because again, the bass player wrote it. The, there's mm. no guitar solo in this one, right? It's like, this no. is a song for the bass player to shine and he does. And it's a short, it's less than three minutes. That's my kind of jam. Like I love the Ramones, you know, so yeah. Give me get get in and get out, and but the Ramones even still somehow had guitar solos sometimes. So I think the difference between this and Can't Stand the Heartache is that he wrote this for himself. Or and I almost wonder, like, if the producers got in the way with Can't Stand the Heartache, and they're like, "Well, let's see if Sebastian can fix this shit burger." We're here. They're like, "Just go drive." I love that you listen to it to get ready for work, Max. 
<laughs> that is like, awesome. Come on, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't fuck with that. Yeah, no, it's just a, it's just a good pick me up song. I find find it to be. It's a great bit of just like I said, just sledgehammer to the face kind of music. Yeah, I I would say so. I pulled up the set list. You will be shocked to learn that "Can't Stand the Heartache" and "Midnight Tornado" were the two songs they did not play. Yay! <laughs> so they they played. They, they, they played, they'd already decided these were these shit. Two songs. <laughs> because <laughs> again they only i mean the whole album's 39 minutes long and i mean sebastian yeah. riffed a lot you know but still yeah. they they played 40 minutes tight i mean they, that was back to when opening acts didn't play an hour you were in mm. and out yeah, yeah so maybe they had 45 minutes and that's with him talking and bullshitting and doing whatever between sets so they're like what are the two songs we're gonna cut these shitty ones let's not do those let's just yeah yeah yeah, yeah. great Good stuff. choice yeah yeah Okay, so let's go on to track five then, which is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum from Peace of Me, one of the most famous songs off the album, one of those famous songs in the band's catalogue. Track five at three minutes and 50 seconds, 18 and Life, written by, again, Rachel Owen, and this time with Dave Snake Sabo. Tony, talk to me about 18 and Life. Okay, so <laughs> this is my memory of 18 and Life. <laughs> this is so bizarre. I like The song is exactly what it is. The video, this is back when you just made videos that were the song, like, the band's over here singing and they hired some actors to like literally mm. act out like sing say, you know, like, do you remember yeah. that when videos were just sing say they were either concert videos or it's like, here's words, here's yeah. the thing that I'm doing. Yeah. So the video is that I, I love the video and everything, but there was a kid in my high school who I don't even remember what the presentation was, but he, if he got up like during history class and he just started reading the lyrics to this, like, <laughs> Like and we're laughing our balls off because we know what it is and the teacher doesn't know and he's like, <laughs> Ricky was a young boy. He, I just did the whole song like that, like a poem. I have no idea. It wasn't for English. It was a history class. I, I have no idea why. So like all the things that I like about this song that always over that always supersedes it is some dick just getting up there and we're laughing and the teacher doesn't get why it's funny. He hadn't heard the song, but he like did it super dramatically. So I, I it's a great ballad. It's like the this is what rock ballads should be, right? Um, because it's not necessarily this is again, it's not a love song, but it's still a power ballad. You know, there's a difference there. And I don't know how you guys feel about power ballads. I'm interested to hear. I I, I think some bands lean too hard into them. Um, and I know that's where they they made their money off the two power ballads on this on this album. Uh, but they also, because box voice, you're like, Oh, maybe this guy should be on Broadway. Oh. And then he does. So this is where the 18 in life shows you that why he's on Broadway later. Yeah. What do you reckon Dave? Yeah. I love this one. And, and I think because I'd learned to play it on guitar first as well, it was one of those things. If I'd go into a guitar shop, you know, where they have the old don't play stairway to heaven and everything. Mm. This was my go-to. You know, by doing, ding, 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 you know, just oh yeah, yeah, it's good that good action. <laughs> so, so yeah, this was definitely this is my go. This is Stein. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I mean, you look at the lyrics now, and and there's again no real cleverness to them. It it's just a very very simple song about someone who's down on his luck. Um, I remember. 
was this guy Paulie. He was taking the piss out of me because at the t- like a year or so after this, I, I think I was listening to New Jersey or something like that, and he was like, "Oh God, all this music's the same. It's all like when I was a young boy, you know, I was out on my own." <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it, it is a bit like this, isn't it? You know, he walked, yeah. fought like a switchblade, and and so no one could take him down and everything. It, it's also macho and and you know it's this lone wolf um out there but then you know it is it is talking about the tragedy of it as well you know mm-hmm. and, and the fact that you know he's obviously going to go down he, he i think it says he he shoots to the wind so it's, it's one of those accidental things that mm-hmm. that y- you sort of see he's not actually just it's not a crime of passion sort of thing he's just accidentally shot someone and that's that's his life gone so i to your question, Tony, about power ballads, I fucking love a good power ballad. <laughs> Bring it on. Yes. Um, and I think, as you, as you say, I think Skid Row, I think they did get a bit of criticism and you get from Bach's autobiography that even he was a bit annoyed by how popular the power ballads were because he is a fucking rocker to his core. But his vocals are so amazing on the power ballads. You can see why they just caught fire and, um, you know, had a lot to do with the success of this album. But uh, no, I think this is definitely up there for me. I I think what I would say is the singles that they chose from this album were the right singles. You you know, this was the definitely the first commercial track that we've covered as, as we walk through the album. I, I think it's outstanding. And, as soon as I hear that opening guitar riff again, it, it just puts the hairs upon my arms. I, I just absolutely love this one. Yeah, me too. I think it's quite an atmospheric song. And, and what's interesting as well about this song is every other song on this album is told from like a first person perspective. Like, this is me. I'm going out partying. I'm going out, you know, shagging chicks or I'm her going out. Her big guns dr- are pointing uh, in my face. Her big guns, I mean, yeah. are, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> This 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 is the only song that's about somebody else, if you will. They're telling it from an outside, as bunch of observing mm. somebody else. And it's the only time on the album they do it. Every other every other song is me. This is what I'm doing. You know, come and get it. Blah de blah. Here we go. So from that point of view, it's a bit fresher than than the rest of the album. And I think it's you know it's quite serious subject matter as well compared to this again like we've said we've already poked fun at the lyrics of most of the songs on the first half of this album as we get to the halfway point but these lyrics are quite serious really it's quite it's a cautionary tale if you will um and again you know with the risk of repeating myself and what everyone else is keep saying the vocal on this track is just magnificent the, the end note at the end where he goes whoa 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 and I, I can't possibly do it without sort of much tighter underpants on but the, <laughs> the, the, the way he just sings like that it's phenomenal i mean as an aside when you think about it when they recorded this album he was 20 years old i mean yeah. that's 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 phenomenal really when you think about it what what Huge successful heavy metal band has a 20 year old singer that's it's bonkers and to be able to sing like that with that kind of range and power and control and character at that age is nothing short of phenomenal to me you know but it's, not it's just crazy on the, not just on the album as well when they're touring mm. he's doing it mm. night after night and yeah you know you just assume listening to it he must tear his vocals cords to shreds 
mm. every night, but it is just that raw power. Mm. And I think it, it helped, didn't it? You know, it had a lot of vocal lessons as well. So he does, mm. he, he does look like he just rocks up. You know, he's got out of bed, had a bottle of whiskey for his breakfast and then gone straight on stage, doesn't he? But, you know, he does actually warm up properly. And, you know, he'd learned that through all from being a kid and and singing in the school choir and stuff you know he he did have that raw talent but he really worked at it as well and for me the i I agree about the the end notes there max but the Mm. bit that elevates this this whole song is when he sings that child blew a child away yeah you know you could just sing that in a very flat way you know in the same kind of note range as as the rest of the of the rest rest of the verse but he just elevates it up and it just makes it so powerful because he kind of goes up and then you've got the guitar coming in as well and you've got this nice mesh this this blend of the vocals and the and the guitar i just think it works so well it's funny yeah. how you mentioned that this isn't a band that harmonizes. That's the moment he and Snake harmonize mm. in that moment yeah. because it's like how you know for a singer to be able to sound like a guitar, but he does, and that is that because he goes up a whole register and mm. the guitar comes up with him too. And I I do think it's you get why they hired him. I mean, they wrote these songs and clearly they didn't have a singer, and mm. he made their songs better. There's no doubt. Eighteen Life is a fine song. It probably would have been good with somebody else. But that what you just said, he wouldn't have hit those notes. There's that resonance there. It's mm. he sings it like and what you said, Max, he's singing it about somebody like it's a cautionary mm. tale. So instead of it's like I'm this badass rock star who's got boobs in my face, he's saying this is something horrific. And he emotes. And again, it's one of these things you see why. Because in the book, he's like, I can't believe they put me on Broadway. But like, dude, you're emoting in all these songs like you mm. you're doing it. And so people hear you and be like, oh, yeah, he can do that every night because you're doing it every night. So uh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's the art of telling a story, isn't it? You know, it's the song. The song is a story. So you've got to put character in your voice. You've got to put emotion in different parts rather than just singing a party song. You've got to you've got to put a bit more under the bonnet, haven't you? And that's what exactly what he does here. Yeah, I totally agree. Love it. No, me too. It's one of the, to, to my mind, like Dave was saying before, I do love a good rock ballad. I mean, there's some absolute stinkers out there, but done well, I'm an absolute sucker for it. I could listen to them all day. And this belongs, you know, when you talk about the, the best of them, I mean, there's so many to pick from, but I think this one has to be in the conversation. I think it's mm. got to be up there. It's got to be up there with the best ones because it's got, it's got the the ballady side. It's got the clean vocals, but it's got that bit of edge to it as well. It's not a it's not a soppy rock ballad, shall we say? It's you know it's dealing with some heavy subject matter. I think it's just one of the best rock ballads out there from from the time period, anyway. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think we are all in agreement there. So moving on, track six is at three minutes and seven seconds, written by again as the same as the last song, Rachel Bolden and Dave Sabo. And it's Rattlesnake Shake. Dave, talk to me about Rattlesnake Shake. You know, music has changed, hasn't it? The way we consume (laughs) music. And for me, when I listen to this album, because I think, I, you know, I didn't even have this on an LP. I had it on cassette. So you start the album, you press play, and you go through the whole album. 
you're not selecting individual tracks. Mm. Had I had a CD, that might have been different when I get to things like Can't Stand the Heartache and Rattlesnake Shake. I, yeah. I think I can enjoy it because it's part of the album. It's part of that journey from going from Big Guns to Midnight Tornado at the end. I, I have to finish it, you know, as an album. But uh, yeah, I think this, for me, this isn't quite as bad as Can't Stand the Heartache. Uh, or Midnight Tornado, as we get mm. to that, show them hand a bit. But this is probably in the bottom few as well for me. I, I don't, again, I listen to it, I get enjoyment out of it, but it's just not really as good as as some of the other tracks on here, and especially coming out of 18 and Life, which is so brilliant. Mm. You come into this one, and, and actually I've seen you know, footage on YouTube. And I remember I had a few uh, VHS tapes of Skid Row Live as well. You know, I used to watch those. And, and when they perform it live or performed it live, uh, it, it used to look like a lot of fun. But yeah, not not a good one for me, uh, this one. You know, and again, the lyrics don't really stand up. A little bit more, um, a little bit more interesting than some of the other lyrics that that we've had you know again it's telling the story about tricky little vicky juicy miss lucy you know at least there's a bit of fun uh in there and again i think some of the wordplay is is better but then you know they do overplay the rattlesnake shake a little bit for me yeah it's a bit it's just again stock song filler do you share that sentiment, Tony, or have you got higher opinion of this? No, I don't. I, I think, well, there's, there's a story there that they're trying to tell. What I, that, what I think is because, so it has a lot of the same base that piece of me has. So they're like, mm. I feel like, I mean, there's a lot it, rhythmic sonically. It sounds like piece of me. And then it's like, but, oh, it's, but let's take a really good song and let's make it crappy. That's what I feel like they do. Like I noticed it as I was going back through it. Like I even have a line between the two. Cause there's a lot of, you know, again, when the when the leader of your band is the bass player, that doesn't happen very often. Primus is the band, right? Police, where the leads the lead singer, the mm. front man is the bass player. I you know, mm. like the Beatles, they spread it out, whatever. Um, but like Rachel, this is his band. I mean, I, right? This is I mean, Sebastian Bach made the band famous, but it's Rachel, which always pissed Rachel off. It's clear. But this is his band, so I feel like he's like, I've got this other cool bass song, but I don't have any lyrics. So like, let's put some stupid lyrics or half of a good song here. So I feel like I could do without it. I could do with. I feel like it just cheapens piece of me, which is so good because you're like, let's just try to relive it, but make it two minutes longer and crappy. The reason piece of me works is because they don't, I mean, the shake, shake it like a rattlesnake three times at the end. Again, you're doing the verse five, four times in a three minute song. That means you don't have a song, but it's like the music's really good. And that's what they're leaning at. Yeah, I would yeah. suggest so. Yeah, the lyrics, the lyrics are better in the verse than they are in the chorus lyrics. I, my notes, sole notes for this song were cool lyrics in the verse, chorus lyrics, the bollocks. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, that, and as I was listening to it and trying to write a little something about each song, that's exactly what I what I came up with. You know, I like this, the bit in the bridge where it's, you're you know you're lost in search of passion, but Prince Charming ain't in fashion. That's quite quite a cool little couplet shall we say but the the chorus is just the biggest load of bollocks ever it, it doesn't go anywhere this, it's a very flat song it's literally just a, a, a placeholder for me it just bulks out the album it nothing more nothing less i think yeah agreed I mean, look i've never looked at it i'm just looking at it now i mean really they've got two verses haven't mm-hmm. they 
Yeah. The tricky little Vicky one, the juicy Miss Lucy, the others are like pre-chorus. So, mm. you know, I know what you've been trying and you, that one you just said about Max, you're lost in yeah. search of passion. That's a pre-chorus. So mm. two fucking verses, it's not good enough. I think they, they spent themselves in those two verses because th- those are the interesting lyrics and, and they're just like, you know, fuck it. We've got to go in the studio. We've got to record something. And that's why you get it the chorus replayed over and over again. And mm. I think it, it could have been better if they'd have just rearranged it a little bit, had some more verses or, or something, as you say. Well, cause yeah. it's, it's almost a song about something, right? It's about prostitution or strip, you know, or like, because are they, are they strippers or are they prostitutes? Like you can look at it either way. There's almost something there. They almost touch on something, but you're right. So if you're going to do it verse pre-chorus, chorus verse pre-chorus chorus do it a third time you've got a song yeah because musically yeah. it's good like i said it steals a lot from piece of me but it, then it it mm. shits on piece of me because it doesn't do it's not fun it's just like eh. i'm with you like now that i own it digitally not once we're done with this probably just go in and delete those two songs <laughs> you know just delete so my, i've got a seven track version or an eight track version of skid row skid row <laughs> and i i win yeah yeah well, going from a filler song to, again, one of the best songs of the album, one of their most famous songs of all time, uh, which we've all mentioned already at the, at the start of the show, the fantastic track seven, which is You've Gone Wild. Three minutes and 18 seconds, again, written by Bolan and Snake. Talk to me, this is probably their most recognisable song. I think they still, to this day, both Skid Row and Sebastian Bach in his solo shows close the show with this song still. Um, he did when I saw them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's stayed that way ever since. I really do. When you, when I, when I look at concerts that they play and, and uh, he plays, of course, in his, in his solo tours, it, it's a great song, isn't it? Tony talked to me about this one. It's, it's my favorite. It's, it's the best. It's, this is my favorite song. It's the best song, favorite and best on this album. I, again, again, it has all the punk sensibilities that I love about it. It's the message. It's like, it's very, you know, 1978 Ramon, that kind of now I want to sniff some glue idea. You know, it's like, we're just fucked, man. And I think there's something about that just resonates. And I'm a pushing 50, but I still am like, yeah. I mean, no matter where you're from. And, you know, we know that Sebastian had a rough life and the rest of the guys didn't. But you, when you're 12 or 15 or whatever, you feel effect, you feel the world pressure on you and you want to tell everybody to fuck off. And this is just... And again, the boss screaming in my ear about who I'm supposed to be, get a three-piece Wall Street smile, son, and son, you look just like me. And the way that Bach rolls through that lyric, mm. I couldn't even say it. It's, it's, and I, you know, before you had the lyrics, when you're first hearing it on the radio or whatever, I mean, trying to know what he said, like, and I don't know if you guys remember this, yeah. the first time you heard the song, like, wait, what did he say? And so then you got to try to back it up or listen to it or wait for your batteries to die, Dave, so you can hear it slower. And you're like, oh, <laughs> that's what he said. I mean, I would try to write out the lyrics to songs I didn't know the lyrics to before they were always printed in the liner notes. This is one of those songs. I just fucking love it. It is top tier. This is this is what I want from a band. I want rock bands to make this song. I love it. Yeah. Definitely. Dave, do you, uh, do you share those thoughts? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I never used to uh, pay too much attention. I wouldn't go back and write out the lyrics. I would just unashamedly sing them in the wrong way. <laughs> <laughs> if I misheard the lyrics, I'd just happily sing uh, the wrong lyrics. But um, actually, quite a lot of this album, I, I think it's only you know now I can go back and I can look at what the actual lyrics are. Um, but a lot of the lyrics on this album, I find, are a bit impenetrable. I, they're not that easy to understand sometimes. Times. But um, I thought I was coming in with a, a brand new take and I was going to say, this is a punk anthem. I mean, just everything about it. But Tony's sort of said that as well. So Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's cool. It's good that we're on the same wavelength there. But I just think this this was always my favorite. I think as I got older, I probably gravitated more to the power ballads. I, I just thought they were a bit more intricate. But in terms of that pure power, and definitely, you know, when you're listening to this as a teenager, it doesn't matter actually what background you're from. As a teenager, you're always fucking moaning about something, aren't you? So you always think you're <laughs> trodden down. And, and you know, th- that first verse, since I was born, they couldn't hold me down. Another misfit kid, another burned out town. I never played by the rules and I never really cared. My nasty reputation takes me everywhere. It's just like, who the fuck does that not speak to? Mm-hmm. You know, when you when you're a kid, I just think it's it's fantastic. And the, you know, the the power of the guitar. This was another favorite of mine. To it's actually surprisingly easy to play that main riff on the guitar. So it used to be a good one. You know, again, just put up the distortion on the on the amp and then belt this riff out. And you know, again, the the chorus is so powerful isn't it talking about you know they call us problem charles it's like you're talking about a, a mythical them you know the man kind of thing it, it's just fuck them all this is us we're all together and we're going fucking wild you know the hairs on my arms now just just thinking about it and you know i, I just think it's brilliant it's just it is Again, it's in the conversation, isn't it, of, of just great rock anthems of around this time. I, I just absolutely love this one. And, and if you were to, I, I know they had the success with the ballads, but if you were to name one song that defines Skid Row, mm. I, I think this one is it. Yeah, I'd agree with that, definitely. It's like a, it's like a call to arms, isn't it, you know? it's about getting together it's not it's not i am the you've gone wild it's we are the you've gone yeah. wild and it's about you know it's appealing to everyone not just saying this is like we said again all the songs are like i am this i am that she was that this is we are that so it's a real unification mm. of a song i mean the even now when they you know they're all deep into the 50s this obviously like we said they can still close every show with it and it doesn't get to that point where you're like why are you all middle-aged men singing we are the youth gone wild, <laughs> youth gone wild it, you know but it, it works still because it's it's their anthem it's their mm. song it's that as i said before this is the first song of theirs i ever heard and it's you know i i defy anyone to listen to this song and not just love it everything about it's great you know they i love the the bit where they they do the chorus but without any guitar and it's just the drums going doo, 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 and it's just them sort of singing it a cappella almost brilliant stuff it's it doesn't age at all. Again, you know, people can call it cheesy, especially at the end where it's just, but there's no sort of lyrics. It's just, whoa, whoa. I love yeah, that whoa. Yeah. I'm whoa. Love it. Yeah. Um, it, again, just works. Again, huge vocal as every track is. And I've got to say, we spent this whole discussion talking about how great the vocal is and how he elevates everything. 
but you've got to give so much credit to the rest of the band as well. Like we said, these mm. songs are all these songs are all not written by him. These songs are written by the band with the previous singer, and then you know it didn't work out, so they brought in obviously this world class singer to elevate them. But the foundations are there in every song. I mean, the the, the songwriting it's practically every song is written by Rachel Bolan and Dave Sabo, and I can't give them enough credit. You know, we, we keep sort of waxing lyrical about Sebastian back and rightly so, because he was the, the premier league vocalist and, and probably the, the one member of the band that was sort of premier league compared to the rest, but you've got to really give the rest of the band so much credit that they perhaps don't get um, mm. the musicianship spot on throughout, isn't it? You know, it's tight as a, the tight as a drum, the guitar playing is fantastic. And it's the songs, they, they're anthemic and a song like this, it just sticks in your craw and never, never leaves you. Like we're saying, we're talking about a song that's 30, 33, yeah, 33 years old now. And we all still love it as much as we did when we were kids hearing it. And it doesn't age for us. We age, but, the song sort of goes with us through our lives, which is obviously the sign of a good song, isn't it? I totally agree. And there's, I I agree. I think two things there, Max, Rachel Boland is a badass bassist and Dave, you're the bass player here, but my God, I have, you know, like you just don't notice because uh, you're not supposed to notice a good bass player, like the good bass players holding this shit together. And it's his band. I keep, I mean, you're right. Sebastian Bach made them famous, but it is Rachel Boland's band. So if they're never going to get together because Rachel Boland doesn't want to, that's his right. It's his band. And this, this album, this song in particular, and, and, um, piece of me, you see, this is what I can do. I mean, it's like, he's playing bass. Like he's almost playing it. Like it's a guitar, you know, like he, the, what he does, it's, it's amazing. He's definitely a, a world-class. The other thing, also came out in 1989, one of my all-time favorite movies, and I think was is Say Anything. And there's that line, there's the thing where Lloyd Dobler, who's like a punk, you know, himself, and he's like, and I very much related to Lloyd Dobler, but he's like, I don't want to buy anything or sell anything or process anything or career. I don't want to buy anything. Sold. So it's like, it's a much like more rambly way, but there's that thing, this, this, this song and that scene from the movie always work t- together for me because it's like, that's why I love saying anything is because Lloyd's like, I don't like, I need to do, even if I'm going to do something in your corporate world or whatever, I have to do it my own way. I need to get there. And that's what these guys are saying with the song. It's like, you're saying, Max, we're all adults, but you're still, you know, we've all been in a shitty job. We've all been in a city, shitty situation where you don't want to conform and you don't want to feel put upon. You want to do it your own way. Cause you're a smart guy. And, you know, so I just, I just think it just captures something that, the reason it's timeless is because we all feel put upon even as, you know, middle-aged white guys who are doing real reasonably well for ourselves. We're still like, fuck you, man. <laughs> you still want to say fuck you sometimes. Yeah. I think oh. you, you're right to call out the rest of the band. I think for me, let's say they, they carried on with their regular singer and they got signed. This is their one hit wonder. Mm-hmm. This still makes it without Back's vocals. Um, I, I just think with Back, it, it just adds so much power to it all. And But because you've got that kind of crowd vocal, the whoa, that goes anyway. You don't need that power there. Um, so, yeah, I think this still makes it, even in a world without Back. I don't know how he gets away with kind of singing it in his solo stuff now, to be honest, um, because... Uh, I, I don't think they speak, do they? From what I could tell from his autobiography. So, no. Since he didn't write the song, I don't know. Does he pay royalties on that? 
because ultimately people want. I thought when you do it live, you don't have to. Yeah, you can play any song you want. Live, play any it? song you want, can you? Yeah, right. yeah fair yeah. enough. It's I guess it's just if you wish to re- release it as a recorded, like a mm-hmm. live con- live concert recording or something. Obviously, then right, they, right. they as songwriters would get the uh, the royalties from that. But yeah, I think when you perform live, you can literally just spontaneously burst into any cover you want, can't you? I think. I would think, I mean, when I would see the bare naked, back in the day, the bare naked ladies, they would just like do random medleys, like whatever people, like they would just whatever they felt like doing that night, they'd sing or they'd, so unless they bought all those Mm. songs, it'd be like you do a medley of cover songs every night and Weird Al does it, you know, Weird Al will just do weird shit too. So I don't know. Yeah. It's a a good point. Yeah. I, I guess if you're just doing random songs, but with back being so synonymous with Skid Row and it being their anthem, it, it just, it, it's a bit too close, but no, I just I was just interested how he gets gets away with it. But like you say, maybe just when you sing it live, no one cares. There's no royalty to yeah. pay. People have paid for their entry fee, uh, and that's it. Yeah, well, I think if you go and see him live, that's what you want to hear, isn't it? I mean, I think it's probably seventy five to eighty percent of his live set list are Skid Row songs, you know, rather than mostly his solo stuff because that's what people want to hear isn't it so he's kind of obligated to sing that's what sells tickets for people who want to go and see him they want to hear him sing the songs that made him famous don't they so so here's a question for both of you you've got two tickets someone someone's prepared to get or not two tickets but you've got one ticket to go and see mm. sebastian back do a solo show mm. or you could take the ticket to go and see skid row with their new is he swedish yeah, X Factor winner. <laughs> Which concert are you going to? Fuck, it's, it's not even a question to me. It's yeah. Sebastian back all all the way. You know, yeah. Skid Row have got some fucking nerve taking the stage with this guy they've got now. You know, <laughs> he, 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 he's he's obviously going to be a great singer. Of course he is, but it's like they've just picked some guy out of a out of the bar and just gone, "Hey, you want to sing?" There's no star quality there, you know. And I know but- that. Sorry, go on. I think he is technically good, isn't he? I was looking oh, at yeah, some sure stuff is, on, yeah. on YouTube, and I, I'm sure, I, I think he did for, was it Swedish Idol? I think it was, not X Factor, but he did 18 in life, hmm. and he did do it in a very um, clean way. You know, hmm. he, he's got good, powerful vocals, but again, it's just not rock and roll. It's just... You know, it's just ridiculous. It's like picking out someone from a boy band and saying, right, do some Skid Row songs. So, exactly. yeah, I, I just for me, it's no contest either. I just wondered if you two had a different opinion. No, no I think there's a handful. I mean, and we'll, as we go through our show, you know, as we, I mean, I, I think the switch from Dave and Sammy worked fine. That's a different band with Sammy, but it's still a good yeah. band. You know, yeah. when you switch, when, when, um, when you had to bring in, when Bon Scott dies, you know, mm. like the rest of the guys need to continue. ACDC was the Young Brothers band. And so Bon Scott mm. and Brian Young bring something different. But, or Brian Jones brings something different. But they're they're still good. Back in Black is a fucking masterpiece. And, you know, mm. I mean, so it's like, you know, Fleetwood Mac has changed singers over years, you know. And like the Peter Green Fleetwood Mac is good. And so I just, but with Skid Row, the magic was him. As we as Max mm. is saying, the musicians are amazing. But it it only works in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. You're not, it, it just, it. I don't know. It's it, be a different band. Those guys are talented. 
go be a different mm. band. Give yourself a different name. But it's there. It's again, it comes back to it's Rachel Boland's band. Fuck you. You will not take Skid Row from me. And you shouldn't. Yeah. No. But he wrote this song. He wrote Youth Gone Wild. He should be fucking proud of himself. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. But yeah. I still think they should get Sebastian back back in the band and just fucking grin and bear it, you know? Yeah. Like they would make so much money. They could charge all 200 bucks money. a ticket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you read interviews and they've all said that they've made, they've had these, of course they've had these offers, you know, promoters have put sums in front of them for a reunion tour, but the rest of their band do not want to do it. He, he does. Sebastian Bach says in interviews, yeah. he would, he would go back and do it. He would, and he would welcome the opportunity, but those guys in the band simply do not want to work with him. They can't stand him. And they've said that no amount of money will make them sort of put that to one side and work with him again. I suppose you have to respect them because so many bands do reunite with the classic lineups because the dollars dollars are there and it's a great earner. And, you know, you can, there's certainly many bands out there who cannot stand each other, but function as a professional unit, because that's how you got to to earn a living. I suppose it's like in any job, you have to work with people you don't like, but I suppose in a way I admire their, principles but i fucking hate them for it as well yeah just yeah. fucking get over it yeah 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 johnny and joey ramon didn't talk for like the last 15 years of them being a band like yeah. they like not just after they were done and retired and johnny retired like 15 years of being in a band they would only speak about band stuff and if they had anything mm. else to say they would talk like through marky the drummer mm. but like couldn't stand each other but yeah. they were like we can't do this without each other what are the ramones without johnny and joey Let's go be a band. It's crazy. I th- yeah, I think you said it before, Tony. Though that I think because I mean we we've all just said, you know, take the original band or Sebastian back doing Skid Row songs. You're gonna go and watch back. I think they just probably there was some jealousy there, you know, without a doubt that he was getting all the fame and adulation, and he's a good looking guy, isn't he? Probably gets all the girls and stuff, and they're like, you know, hardworking musicians and a bit jealous but also what a fucking rock star as well and i don't mean that in a good way it's said as a good thing now isn't it you know oh they're a rock star at their job no he was a proper kicking the ass out of life rock star and so i could imagine when you're trying to be very serious about your job which just happens to be playing on a stage practicing your songs doing the music and whatever he must have been a fucking nightmare because they they were touring like bastards you know and and so i think they probably just got past that point where anything was reconcilable you know so when they eventually split it was like you know what we never have to speak again and you just hope that enough time goes past that they realize, you know what, there was something magical about this. Let's get over ourselves and put on a fucking massive world tour and, like I say, make all the money. Yeah, exactly. It's not like they're still on top, is it? It's not like they're still packing out large venues. They're not. So it's not like they can afford to say we don't, we're still at the pinnacle of our career because they're clearly not. So, you know, you sometimes have to be, objective about these things and just say you know if, if we had him back we'd make so oh. well again it, it's not all about money but the the profile would be so much bigger they could get on massive tours you know they would have been the you know guns and roses reformed didn't they to a fashion about five years ago mm. and have been, have been touring stadiums across the world ever since sebastian back's relationship is really strong with guns and roses to this day mm. they could, and, and they supported guns and roses a lot back in these days as we said they would have been a great opening act for that Guns N' Roses oh, stadium, stadium World Tour. So good. But, of course, not happening. So, 
again, they're just missing opportunities. Again, I admire the principle of it. I really do. But you've, you've got to give people what they want, haven't you? Yeah. I when totally you're agree. in show business, I think you do. Yeah. Well, that's the name of the game. Give the punters what they want, not not make them miss what they want. So who knows? Maybe one day it'll happen, but I just don't see it now, to be honest with you. I think I think so much time's it. gone past, hasn't it? And yeah. You know, they're not getting any younger. No, no. They must have an allergy to money, but maybe they've maybe they've got enough money. I don't know. It's a shame though. It really is a shame. It is. Yeah, it'd be joyous. I'd be there for that, that's for sure. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on. We've got four more tracks to go. We'll get through them as quick as we can. Um, the next one, track eight, is at three minutes and ten seconds. Here I Am. Again, written by, no surprise, Bolden and Snake. Dave, what do you reckon to Here I Am? Over the years, I've gone through various stages where a, a different song on this album is my favourite. You know, mm. the the lesser ones we've talked about mostly, so not those things like Can't Stand the Heartache. But for a while, this one was my favourite. I think it's just that that guitar riff is just a little bit different. And I think not so much for the, from the album recording, but I remember seeing them, you know, on, on one of the VHS tapes that I had where they were performing it live. And again, as a frontman, he was just amazing. And, you know, he's singing away while he's legging it from one part of the stage to the other and not sounding out of breath or anything. And it was just so much energy in it. And I think all of it, you know, close your eyes and I'll be Superman. There's just something powerful about this song that I just love. And uh, so, yeah, this, this probably isn't any more one of my, Oh yeah, probably not one of my favorites on the album, but definitely one of the stronger ones for me. Really enjoy yeah. it. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Tony, what do you think to this one? Yeah, my notes just simply say this one rocks. It rocks. <laughs> it's just a rock. It's like what my favorite part is the no, 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 no. Because yeah. he that's him. Like the lyrics just say no, no, no. But he doesn't just say no, no, no. And so it's like again, he's just playing mm. around. But it rocks. you you just said it. And didn't you say this is where they switch? Switch guitars. Yeah, yeah, that's what I know. That must be what it is. Really good trade-offs. Yeah, fucking rocks. That's all I wrote. Is this song rocks? It's it's not special. Like if if you were gonna again, if you were like we're in a rock cover band, or there's like if you typed in generic rock song, this might come up because. But it is. It's what I want. It's like it's just generic. It's it's maybe one step down from you know the pinnacle of stuff they could do, but it shows their chops. It's like we know how to make a rock song. This is the template. Other bands. If you're trying to teach what is rock and roll to an alien, you'd play Here I Am. Yeah. Sounds good to me. I must say, one thing I wanted to know is, Tony, I don't know if it's an American phrase, but I'd love to know what it actually means. The opening lyrics to this song is six foot one and lonely, dressed in spaghetti rags. What the fuck are spaghetti rags? I have no idea. Oh. But all I can think of is, <laughs> like, if his clothes are all, are all like, um, torn up, so, like, they're torn up, like, spaghetti, like, so, like, spaghetti straps. Are yeah. the thing that you know, like on women's clothes, of trail thing. I think so it's, it's like her. his clothes are just like all raggedy, so they're spaghetti rags because they're all ripped up, as opposed to like having holes in them. They're like ripped mm. like this. That's my guess. Yeah. Oh, I was okay. thinking like a glam rock seventies thing, you know, with oh. all the tassels and things, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I love that <laughs> though, Dave. Like a like a Tina Turner. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I was thinking more like sweet or something like that from the seventies. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> or Slade. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah. It's 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 a it's a decent track. It's it's not again, it's not one of the best songs on the album in, in my opinion, anyway. Yeah. But it's a good it's it's not filler, but it's not the top top songs on the album. But it's a good solid rock song, well delivered. Again, like I've said before, I love the guitar trade-off solos in this. It's really good. Vocally again, brilliant. So yeah, good solid song. You think he he does sort of emote and play around with the vocals a little bit more on this track as well. Just thinking yeah. the way out, how he expresses, because I think I'm getting hooked on you, mm. you know, and the way he, he delivers that. And then when you've got the whole, um, you don't need a crystal ball, you know, and he's like, so, the way he's saying it almost from the back of his throat and then, and then goes completely to the other end of the scale when he's saying to see she's got it. Oh, you know, and then that's when you go into the, into the guitar solo. I just think he, he's sort of having a bit of fun with the, the vocals on this one. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Yeah. It's, it is a good song. It's solid, isn't it? It's solid. It's a good, it's just a it's a good word to describe. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It, is. it belongs yeah. on the album, but it's not a single, right? No, there needs to be that. Yeah. You need to have seven songs that are good. You know, and this is one. It's there's definitely yeah. some that suck, and this is like I won't skip this one. It makes me feel good. I I think it rocks. I think the next one that we're gonna go to is a little bit better, um, but it also rocks. It's also not a single, but it's also like good. You know, it's like this is us figuring out how to be a band, how to be a rock band. Yeah, almost definitely. Yeah, yeah, I like it. Okay, so track nine then at three minutes thirty eight seconds is making a mess. A soul, um, al- a soul album, soul track on this album actually has Sebastian Bach's writing credit on it. So it's Sebastian Bach, and then again the usual twosome of Bowen and Snake, uh, making a mess. Tony, what do you think of making a mess? Yeah, I really like making a mess. I think it is. It's got that punky vibe. It's again, it's them playing around with stuff. It, uh, I think this is one of those ones because he, he, I feel he probably got writing credit because there's so many extra words that don't really fit, like. When you look at how their songs are written, they're tighter. There's like three or four words per line. And in this, they're like, watch what I can do. Watch how fast I can sing. Look what I can do. So it's like he's showing off a little. So I think that's what's fun about it is, is like he's using his voice, as we've said all along, is an instrument. But this is where he's actually using his lyrics as an instrument too. like the way he delivers the lyrics in this song. I just really I just really love it. Um, it's, you know, top top half. If I'm going to rank them, this comes in, you know, above the halfway halfway point for me. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Dave, what do you reckon to making a mess? I, I, th- I think this one rocks as well. And it, what's interesting is you almost want to take some of the verses out of this one yeah. and put it into Rattlesnake Shake because nice. Rattlesnake Shake is all chorus and this is all verse. I mean, it's like they used all the words in this song. And, and like you say, the way spits them all out, you know, super quick but everything's quite clear. I, I think it's fantastic. I think I'd have it around about the same level as Here I Am. You know, they're, they're both really solid rock songs to go on this album. Um, but yeah, just it, it's weird. I mean, you can't see exactly who's written what, but it's so different from Rattlesnake Shake. It's almost like a different band when I just look at it coldly without the music or anything. Yeah. Um, some great lyrics in here yeah yeah there is yeah this it's quite interesting yeah they're talking about people again it's i suppose it ties back to what i was saying about it in life there's some elements here where they're talking about people again rather than 
themselves. You know, the opening verse here, you know, T-Bone Billy just singing the blues, caught his lady with another man, lit up a smoke and did some talking with the back of his hand. That's pretty harsh, you know, giving the woman mm. a slap with the back of your hand because you've, you've seen her with another man. But again, it's a character they're talking about. They're not saying... I caught my lady with another man, so I slapped her with the back of my hand. They're mm. not saying that. It's his character. They've invented T-Bone Billy. And then there's other characters, you know, Billy Boy, again, now playing fiddle at the local bar and some record company, Bigwig, comes along and says sign on the dotted line. So, again, there might be some autobiographical elements to it. There's a lot going on lyrically in the song, isn't there? Yeah, I really like it. I think, I just think it's fun. It's a, it's a, it, I just, it, it smokes. I just can't, I like it. I like it. It's one of those ones, you know, there's some songs you want to listen to twice in a row. Mm-hmm. This is one because it's just so fun and you don't really, you can't catch it all. Um, yeah. I, I just really like it. I, I agree with everything you just said there, Max, for sure. Yeah. It's a good song. Uh, and speaking of good songs, this is a penultimate song on the album. Again, one of the big hits from it. Um, a little bit of a different flavor from the rest of the album is number 10 at five minutes the longest song on the album as well actually five minutes and 10 seconds is i remember you again once again written by pullen and snake bit of a departure musically from the rest of the album dave what do you reckon to uh, i remember you you know i should have taken notes on sebastian Bach's autobiography but i'm sure i i remember him saying that <clears throat> i i don't think even though he doesn't get a writing credit I don't think they really took this song seriously. I don't think they were intending for this song to be on the album. Mm. And according to back anyway, you know, he's the one who said that sounds amazing. And I actually had to push quite hard for them to do anything with this song. And I, I just think if that's true, because you've always got to take it with a little bit of a pinch of salt, there's that many drugs and misremembered things, you know, who knows what the actual truth is, but this, uh, again, it's up there for the, you know, top power ballads for me. I, I think it's the same chords as like um, every rose has its, has a thorn, um, you know, and it, it just starts off again, beautifully. I love the way around about this time you have that very clean, uh, guitar, you know, almost like an acoustic guitar, but then you've got the distorted kind of lead guitar over the top of it. And I think in terms of showcasing Bach's vocals, this one is just different level again, isn't it? Just the way he he raises above the notes that you think he should. He goes an octave bef- above where you think he should be. Um, just amazing. And I think this is the one in particular that, I think more so in the US probably got overplayed on MTV and things to the point where they all got a bit sick of it. But mm. I don't remember this getting played over here, Max, much on the on the radio or anything. If I was going to listen no. to some Skid Row, I had to get it. I had to listen to my cassette tape. So um, I, I think it was more just in the US where it got overplayed. But, you know, it, it was overplayed for a reason because it's just fucking brilliant. And so I just love it. Love this song. Yeah, I do too. Tony, do you love it? No, yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. I think he said in the book this was the number one prom song for night. So they released this in November yeah. of 89. So in like spring of 90, this was still on the charts and it ran for a long time. So I bet you this was on the charts for probably six months. 
Um, mm-hmm. um, and so, yeah, this was a big, big, big hit. And it, it is really good. It's up there with like Tesla's love song as one of those songs that came out at that time that like that defined the band more than the rest of their sound. But it's their what if they were going to be a one hit wonder, it would be this uh, in America. If, if, if you weren't a rock fan and you're like Skid Row, this is the song they know. Mm-hmm. If you're not a rock fan, you're like Tesla. They're like love song. Um, yeah. Both of those songs got overplayed, but I still, but as a fan of both bands, I still think they're brilliant. And I think, again, Bach played it for Wagoner and he was like, that's going on the album. That's why mm-hmm. it's on the album because I just, re- I just finished the book yesterday. So that was it. It was, um, they didn't want to do it. They're like, fuck this song. We hate it. It's almost like a joke. Like they're making fun of rock ballads. Yeah. Like, we got to yeah. do it. Listen to what I can do. And so then when he played it to Wagner, he's like, you guys are putting that on. And they, what are they going to say? No to the producer. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It is a good song. It's quite lyrically as well. It's quite sensitive, isn't it? There's no, there's no bravado in this song whatsoever. It's not like, you know, this was my girl and I was banging her till gone midnight every night <laughs> or whatever it's like they're looking back at a lost love aren't they like the felt like a reminiscing about the one that got away kind of thing and remembering them it's, it's a quite a very sensitive song that's why i'm surprised it was like the number one prom song it's like you know in prom i imagine it's all love dovey and you know you've got your whole life ahead of you whereas this is quite a somber it is i said about the same chords as every rose has its thorn and and it's it's almost the same tone isn't it it's about looking back at that lost love and everything so um yeah a bit of a strange one to play a promise we're dumb just keep in mind and like the 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 song because this because the music is somber like everything max just described me perfectly about the music so i'm not going to try to restate that People like it. It's a ballad. It makes you feel good. Like it's a slow, dancey, you know, number. You don't have to know how to dance to dance to this one. Like you could be drunk and dance. You could be sober and dance. It's just there's and there's, you know, there's a few of those um, that are just that way. Bon Jovi has one, you know, has one or two. There's just a handful of those songs that are like they become like I think Smashing Pumpkins 1979 was a prom song. I'm like, did you do you know what this song is? But because it's it sounds wistful and the music makes you want to slow dance to it so and the title's perfect so even if you're not yeah, listening to the rest yeah. of the lyrics you're like oh i remember you we're leaving we're graduating i'll remember you and then that's not what that is but you didn't know because you weren't listening you just thought it sounded awesome that guitar solo <laughs> is ace. oh wow yeah it is yeah it just kicks in brilliantly just after that like bridge or whatever where he says yeah. i swear you'll never i swear you'll never be lonely and as he's holding that note it just kind of kicks in it's really well constructed song i i'm i bet they can't believe the look that they were persuaded to put it on the album because imagine if they hadn't I mean, a very different story so it just goes to show i guess sometimes these songs that you can sort of think they're not too keen on can be your biggest hit it's bonkers and it makes it even worse doesn't it the fact that back's the one who lobbied for this to go on the album ends mm. up, you know, they're the ones with the writing credits, but really it would have never seen the light of day. And they're making a shitload of money from his input, you know, take away everything else, you know, just for that, they should take him on the damn tour. <laughs> <laughs> We're yeah. here to say, take him on the damn tour. There's no doubt about yeah. that. Yeah. Amen to that. Amen yeah. to that. So we move on to the very last oh. song of the album then, the very last one. <laughs> 
four minutes and 17 seconds midnight tornado or midnight slash tornado midnight tornado i'm not sure very interesting song um songwriting this one it's written by dave snake sabo and the previous singer of the band he's got a writing credit is it dave fallon or brian fallon i can't remember his name matt, i'm wrong on both counts it's fucking matt fallon um <laughs> he was a, he was a <laughs> singer fallon. of the band mr fallon yeah was the <laughs> singer of the band before sebastian back but obviously helped obviously write this song and they carried on using it and so he obviously gets his name as a as a songwriter and rightly so if he helped to write it i think he also i think before this he had a brief spell as the lead singer of anthrax as well but left before they got Joey Belladonna in and became, you know, huge. So he's kind of the nearly the nearly man of 80s rock, Mr. Fallon, by the sound of it. Poor bastard. Um, so <laughs> the Midnight Tornado or Midnight Slash Tornado, whatever you want to call it. Dave, what do you reckon to this one? Oh, I, I just wish they'd have stopped it. Uh, to be honest, I, I want to say 10 songs, but just eight. Mm. You know, if you look at something like the early... Like what what was the Sabbath first album? I'm sure the Sabbath first album was about eight songs or something. Yeah, so yeah. it, it seems to me that they've really tried to overstretch, you know, the number of songs that they've really got that are, are of that quality. For me, if you take three songs out of this album, it is even better. And and it's still a great album. I still love it. And like I say, for me, it's an experience when I go from start to the end. I have to listen to it all, but I get to this one and it, it is such a come down from, I remember you, mm. I, I, I just feel like they should have just chopped it off. If you, if you'd have finished on, I remember you, what a powerful way to finish with those vocals blasting out of your, uh, ghetto blaster at the time or whatever music system, your little, uh, Sony Walkman, whatever it is. Um, I just think this really brings it down and I kind of, I say about listening from start to the end, but this is definitely the opportunity to say, okay, stop, <laughs> rewind, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and start again. There should have been a little editorial control in here. Um, Tony, what do you reckon to this? Oh, I agree. I think if you're going to include it, don't put it last, put it second to last and end on a banger. If, you, if you're desperate to keep it on, you don't want to end the side of a record or cassette with this and you want to end now with this. Like you start off with big guns and you end with this and it's like such... I mean, it, it is regret. You're supposed to show some growth or something, but this is again knowing that it was written before Sebastian got in the band. It's an older song. They're like, we got some garbage laying around. It's garbage. I don't. Obviously, the first time I saw them, they didn't they didn't perform it. So there's a reason. Um, I'm sure nobody's banging on the door to do Midnight Tornado except for Mr. Fallon. <laughs> it's bad. It's bad. Bad. I. I just it, it's musically it's not good. Lyrically it's not good. Sebastian's heart isn't in it. It's just not very good. And uh, I don't like it. Thumbs down. No, I'm not a fan either. Yeah. I've written the lyrics. I'm not sure if the, the, the sort of the character in the song is supposed to be a vampire or something like that. I think he keeps going about when, when the clock strikes midnight is a motif for the song. And the first verse is the night approaches after dark. You have no chance. When moonlight takes a sky, you feel my dark romance. And it, kind of that's the sort of the theme all the way I, i'm on your footsteps and i wait behind your back i spread light fire upon the streets i'm ready to attack 
So I'm just wondering if it's like supposed to be some like vampiric character or something like that, or a fucking sex pest by the sounds of it. Well, <laughs> that too. Yeah, that tr- that <laughs> that true. <laughs> but it, it it's kind of just out of context with the rest of the album, though, isn't it? You know, the rest of the album's about sort of celebrating being out there and doing it, or the more wistful stuff like I remember, or the cautionary stuff like 18 and Life. But this song, it's like. I don't know. It, it seems like sort of that sort of semi-cliched eighties metal lyrical content, you know, monsters and dungeons and dragons and things like that. I don't know. It just seems out of place to me. You know what it sort of reminds me of in a weird way, you know, the first, um, first Iron Maiden album. So yep. 1980, you had women in uniform on there and it was kind of before they'd really got, that kind of identity about what they really are. And then for me, women in uniform was always just this weird song that was just out of sync with everything else or out of phase with everything else that they did. And this is like that, like you say, musically, it's just very ploddy and the lyrics are just, you know, again, it's the 12 year old boy, isn't it? Writing about some, trying to write something that's cool and, you know, mm. lurking around in the night and, and what have you. And it well, just, you're goth boy. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's not good. Um, yeah. So yeah, this, this is pretty terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. It's not, it's not great. And it's a, not a good way to end what is a really good album. So it's a shame, but there you go. I guess he saved the worst till last. <laughs> Um, so based on that, we've reached the end of our sort of synopsis of the album. So it's time to give it a mark out of five. Now, what we've done here is rather than give it sort of one through to five, we've come up with some names for sort of each section based on classic bits of rock and roll. So we'll mark it through one to five, one being a flaming turd through to five being a stone cold masterpiece. So one is Hotel California. Two is quite aptly Skid Row. Three is Crossroads, four is Dr. Feelgood, and five is Paradise City. So I'll start with you, Dave. What are you giving this album? You know, so in our little WhatsApp chat, when we are formulating this whole idea for this project and everything, and I think it was a couple of weeks ago you'd posted there, Christ, there's a lot of filler in this album. You did. I was like, oh. Wounded, oh, I just I couldn't believe it. I was thinking, oh my god, this again, this was my gateway drug. I have so much love for this, but you know, especially going back, and I think now as we're analyzing this and, and going through song by song, rather than just experiencing the album, you realize actually, yeah, that there's three tracks in particular which are just so far below everything else i think and so i think i, I agree yes there, there are some filler on this track as well <laughs> but i still absolutely love it and again because of you know that being that um gateway into rock uh, rock music of that time for me um but i still really enjoy it when i go back and listen now i i'm not going to put it right on the top uh i don't think it's it's quite at that level but it, it was in my thoughts whether it would be or not so this would be uh just a little bit down from the top this would be a doctor feel good for me excellent stuff and tony what about you sir? i almost i just what dave said all of that exactly 
I feel good. And so to me, Dr. Feel Good is the right thing. There's some of the songs, like I said, Sweet Little Sister. Oof. Musically, though, I just want that to be an instrumental. Um, and then there's a couple, you know, a couple of other crappy ones. So for me, I'm going to give it a, a Dr. Feel Good because it's it's not it's not. I'll go back to this. I own it. <laughs> you know, I'm going to let's do it again. Um, it's 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 you know, it's a good pick me up. And so I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with Dr. Feel Good because he's the one who makes me feel all right. Absolutely. And at the risk of sounding repetitive, I think I'm going to go for Dr. Feelgood as well. I can't possibly put it in at the top because for me, for an album to be at the top, damn near every single track has to be an absolute killer. And this isn't the case here. But as debut albums go, it's right up there. For a band to arrive out the box with the first album and be this fully formed and have all the parts in order... I think it's a really, really strong album. I think the production on it is super. We've barely even mentioned the production. I think the production's great. State of the art for the time. Michael Wagner was a uber producer of 80s rock. His, his, his CV is as long as your arm from really great bands from that era. And sonically, it sounds really good. For an album of its time, it sounds good today as it did then. You don't listen to it and go, well, that sounds really dated. It still sounds really big. Um, really full. I think the musicianship's really quality on it. It's just, as we've all said, it's just let down by two or three stinkers, but the rest of the album I think is really good. So it just goes, just, just, just falls short of the top spot. So yeah, three Dr. Feelgoods all round, I think. Great. So we finished our sort of retrospective of Skid Row. So what we're going to do now is pick our next episode, Subject Matter. So rather than having it predetermined, we what we've done is we've put in into one big pot a whole host of albums that we've all picked and contributed. Some we all love, some we don't. Different genres, all classic stuff. And we're going to pick one out, random draw, via Dave's fantastic Wheel of Fortune arrangement here. So, Dave, do you want to do the honours and spin the wheel and see what we're going to talk about next time? I will. And uh, Tommy Lee, can you give me a, a drum roll, please? <laughs> <laughs> While going upside down. So let's spin the wheel. It's going... Slowing down. Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin. Wow. All right. Oh, excellent. Amazing. Yes, all the Zeppelins are in that, in the pot. Excellent. Well, that's exciting. Wow, it's been a long time since I've listened to Physical Graffiti, so that'll be big fun. Likewise, I'm looking forward to that. We're going yeah. back a decade from what we've just done, so that's going to be interesting. Different time, different place, very different band uh, <laughs> musically and lyrically. So um, I'm very much looking forward to spending the next few weeks revisiting that album great stuff yeah. what do you reckon dave yeah I, I, again the same it's not one of my go-tos to be honest uh it's been a long time but uh i i think for me i remember when i was listening i probably my my journey actually started with skid row and then it was a bit of guns and roses into iron maiden then uh, various other things, but my dad would always tell me that the likes of Iron Maiden were a poor man's Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. <laughs> so, you know, I ended up educating myself later on, but that, that was after in my kind of journey. So, uh, yeah, my dad had loved this. So, um, yeah, quite looking forward to the next month of, of listening to this one. Nice. Me too. Great. Great stuff. Great stuff. Well, if anyone's enjoyed the show, they can find us in a couple of places. We've got our own Twitter page now, which is at mandatory CD, all one word, no underscores or anything like that, at mandatory CD. 
Or if you want to, you can email us if you've got any suggestions for an album to be added to the pot and then it can be in the Wheel of Fortune next time. Our email address is all one word. It's mandatory music and CD at gmail.com. Then that's the word and not the symbol. The uh, um, Is it the ampersand, Tony? Yes, it is the ampersand. ampersand. Yes. Yep. Yes. The ampersand, yeah. I knew, I knew reading why the last man would stand me in good stead. There sometime. you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mandatory music and CD at gmail.com. Drop us a line, uh, any feedback or any suggestions, and we'll, uh, we'll go from there. So thank you very much for everyone who's listened.